here this morning. I've been asked to sort of recap 2018 um, with what we talked about. And our theme for 2018 was based on Nehemiah. We looked at the book of Nehemiah. We looked at the particular verse in Nehemiah 2, verse 18, which said, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. And we talked about building one another. We talked about building builders, building community and building mission. And some of the key things that we said was we want to try and help people to find my place, to arise and build and to breathe new life into what they do. And when you look back at that, you may think, yeah, I was involved in in that particular thing and I can see how it did that. Or yeah, I did find my place because I found my place either within something that I'm doing within church or just I found my place in my family. Something somebody said, it just something we did in small groups, it just helped me and I just feel more, I feel myself, I feel that I can be myself. Some of you may look back and think, yeah, that didn't really work for me. Like, I I don't know how that worked and helped me. And that's okay. You know, when you look at social media at the end of one year and into the beginning of another, it's like a mixed bag, isn't it? You sort of go on social media and some people are like, yeah, 2019, I'm coming for you. And then you have some people who are like, 2018, I hate you. Get away from me. 2019, has got to be better because 2018 was like hell on earth and you see people on Facebook sort of crawling out of 2018 and if you've watched the crude shouting still alive whereas some people are just like yeah I've had a brilliant 2018 it's been a good year I've got married we've had a baby I've moved house I've started a new job I've moved to a new city and started university many many things and it's a bit of a mixed bag and years can be like that and the trick is is what you actually do with it And, you know, we've looked so much at Nehemiah this last year. We sort of worked our way through Nehemiah, through all the chapters, and then we actually revisited Nehemiah. And then I'm like, is there anything else in Nehemiah that I can say that we haven't said already? And I suddenly thought, well, what about Nehemiah himself? Very often we talk about this is what Nehemiah did and this is what the Israelites did. This is what happened. This is what we can learn from the book of Nehemiah. But but who was Nehemiah? Who was he? And I think when we finally dig down to the grassroots of who he was, it can help us when we look at recapping in our own lives and how we look back and see things, whether they were good or whether they were bad. And it can also help us as we look forward into the next stage when we look at his life. And so that's what I want to do this morning, if that's okay. And I've just got four things that I want to say to you uh, that I've just picked up as I've looked through that I think are important things that we can learn about Nehemiah. But also, if we put these in place in our lives, if we look at these and say, yeah, I, I want to have that attitude. I want to I behave like that. I want to I go towards my difficulties and work through them like I saw Nehemiah doing. Then I think it can actually change our perspective on life, our perspective on our past, but it can also help us to help fulfill and see dream and vision come true that we're believing for, that we're hoping for, that maybe we're thinking this is just never going to happen. 
But actually, if we can grasp hold of the character who Nehemiah was and learn from it and adopt some of those characteristics, I really believe that it will help us personally, it will help us corporately, it will help us as a church to arise and build, even as we move out of 2018 and we move into 2019. So the first thing that I want to say to you about Nehemiah is that he had confidence in his credentials. He was a man who had confidence in his credentials. Last night, I sent Paul up the loft. Our loft has no sort of ladder or anything. It's like a hole in the ceiling. And yes, yeah, so Paul like turns into a bit of an acrobat. And he has to stand on the, the, the landing rail thing. What do you call that? The banister, that's the word. He stands on the banister. I'd say I've got baby brain, but like my, my youngest is 10. <laughs> I think it's still affecting. He stood on the banister and he sort of takes the lid off the, the loft and gives it to me. And then he puts his hands on and then he does this sort of swing thing with his knees and up he goes. And, and just as he was going up, Olivia was already in bed at this point. Grace was coming out of the bathroom and she was like, What's he doing? I'm like, he's going up in the loft, Grace. But it is a strange thing to see a man swinging, and then he sort of crawls up, and the last thing you see is the last bit of his bottom. Just <laughs> in it goes. I quite enjoy that bit myself. <laughs> and I'd sent him up the loft, as you do. You could quite understand why I don't even attempt to it, because I don't think I could even reach it. Um, but I sent him up the loft to try and find my record of achievement. Who had a record? Oh, somebody did. I heard somebody. Who had a record of achievements? I wanted to bring it and show it to you. I have no idea where it is. I found all the things out of it, but not the thing itself. So I'm quite sad about that. But it was like a burgundy folder with gold writing on it that said record of achievement. And I don't know whether they do anything now when you're in high school or college, but you sort of had to have these lessons and you'd write in it what, what you were doing well at and, and you'd put all your certificates in like if you represented the school in something those would all go in and then when you passed your exams you had blank pages so you could write them on really neatly and then you forget to use a ruler and they sort of go down and you think it looks straight when I was doing it but we had these records of achievements and I was so proud of mine do you have anything like that I've just got a lot of people 40% of the church are like what <laughs> Do you have anything like that from school? Yeah? Are you, in, are you in there, that 40%? Do you get something? But I had this record. I was so proud of it. I was like, this is my achievement. And, and I remember when I finished university, and, I, and you finish university and you're like, I'm going to get a job. And you sort of go for like a million job interviews and then you end up temping somewhere. Well, I did anyway, because nobody wanted me. But I would go to these interviews in my sister's suit because I didn't own any suits. I owned jeans and trainers and that was sort of it. So I would wear this, this like, that, that colour blue, Ben, that folder, just hold it up. That colour blue suit that my sister had, nice, yeah? And, and it was like, it had a jacket, but it, it wasn't trousers, which I found quite disturbing. And, and it was like a long skirt that you sort of <laughs> walked in like this. It had a little slit up the back. And I would go to these job interviews in this suit with my record of achievements under my arm, thinking, I am the bee's knees. And I would turn up and... Sometimes you go to an interview and it's like a group interview and it's like dog eat dog when they ask the questions. But I would be the one there with the record of achievement. 
Nobody else. And it never dawned on me why nobody else took their record of achievement to their job interview. But to this day, the last interview I had, which was for the primary school that I worked in before here, I took my record of achievement to that interview with me. And now I'm realizing as I'm saying it that nobody else <laughs> does that, do they? But I would take it with me and I would wear my sister's suit and I would think, I have an answer for every question you have. And I really thought that this carrying my record of achievement that said how many GCSEs I'd got and that I represented the school in hockey and that I'd even got like my um, reports from year nine in it to just say what a good girl I was. And, 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 and I've got some credentials. You could employ me. I have no life experience. I've been at university for like four years and I don't really know what I've been doing and I don't really remember what a lot of the lecturers said, but I'm going to be really good for your job. And I've never worked with children before and I should probably never work with them again, but please employ me. And this was what I would do. But what makes you credible? What actually makes us as individuals credible? And so often it's easy to think, well, my education makes me credible. And that was what I thought for many years. I'm an educated person. I'm credible. Well, you know, what happens if people aren't educated? What makes you credible? Is it just your gifting and your ability with what you do? What happens if you think, well, I haven't got a shining gift like some people. I'm just a bit of an all-rounder. Is it your desire to do something or be able to do something? Is it where you're from or your family that you're from? Is it the belief that you can do something or maybe that you think, well, I'm better than those people. I could do a better job. Is it the position that you already hold that makes you credible? And so often we can get caught up in all these things. And none of these things are necessarily bad. And yes, some of these things do make us credible. They make us credible to hold down a job. They make us credible if we go forward for something and say, I'd like to represent with doing this or I'd like to put myself forward to do this. These things are all there to make us credible. But this isn't where Nehemiah found the confidence in his credentials from. Because we can have credentials, we can pass a degree, we can go to school, we can, we can do whatever it is, and it might not be educationally based. But if we're not confident in them, then what is the point of them? If we have no confidence in what we've learned or the foundation and the bedrock within us, then what is the point? There is none. Because we have no confidence to outwork what we're called to do. We have no confidence to outwork what we've been trained to do. So let's look at Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 1, and we're not going to pull it up, but throughout the whole chapter you see that some of the exiles come back to Babylon, which is where Nehemiah is. And as they come back, he says to them, how is it going? How is it going in Jerusalem? And they tell him this tale of woe, of how difficult it is, and how the walls are all down, and how they're being, they're not being, the, the, the people around them are not treating them well, and it's not easy. And it tells us that Nehemiah weeps for the whole of chapter one, that he weeps over the state of Jerusalem and over the exiles that are left there and those who have returned there because they've been allowed, some of them, to begin to return if they chose to. 
There's a providential call over Nehemiah's life that stirs something within him, that stirs an awakening within him, that causes him to weep and have a heart and compassion. That is confidence in your credentials. The confidence comes from that providential call that does something within you that makes you think, I've got to do something. Something needs to be done. Something has to change. It can't stay this way. That is the confidence that drives you and pushes you forward. That providential call is that divine insight into the fact that that's not right. That is not right. God comes and puts that heart within us. That's not right. That should be different. That should be like this. And God stirs that within us just like he, he did within Nehemiah. Nehemiah was called by God because of the burden that he placed upon his heart. And the confidence in your credentials is the thing that burdens you and drives you forward more than anything else. What's the next thing we see? The next thing we see, let's look at Nehemiah 2, 8, Jess. It says, this is Nehemiah talking to the king. So Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, and one day he was looking like he was pretty sad. And the king said, what's the matter? And he said, well, this is the matter. This is what's going on. And the king says, well, what do you want to do? And he says, well, I want to go. And at this point... Let's look what happens. It says, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park. This is Nehemiah talking to the king. So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel of the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Nehemiah's confidence came from the fact that the king of Babylon, who was king at that time of everywhere, that his confidence came from the fact that the king granted his request. He was provided for. The king said yes. So he had a confidence. It didn't matter what anybody else said. It didn't matter what anybody within the surrounding area said. It didn't matter what anybody in Jerusalem said. The king said yes. And if God says yes, because he's our king today, if God says yes over your life, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. If God has a promise for you. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. And that doesn't mean that you shirt people away from you. You love and you have grace and you keep working on things. But when the king says yes, that is all the confidence you need to keep going. And what did Nehemiah ask him for? He said, can I have a letter so I can go and get some wood out of your wood? Can I, it, Nehemiah didn't just say, oh, I'll go and sort this out and I'll do it all myself. No, he said to the king, can I have some of your royal wood so we can build some timber things? Can, can you Actually, can you, can you provide for this? So you're saying yes, king, but will you actually provide for it as well? I've got this burden, I've got this thing that I really believe to go for, but God, will you provide for it as well? Because if it is you, then you will provide, then you will open the doors, then you will do something amazing. That's the thing that gives you confidence. Sometimes we can run off with our own ideas and we all do that at times. But when the king provides as well, you know you've got the stamp of approval. Because it says, can you give me a letter? Give me a letter so that they know as well that you are saying yes. 
Nehemiah had a confidence in his credentials because he had a letter from the king that said yes. God wants to give you a letter that says yes over your life, over your dreams, over your visions when you line yourself up with him. And the third thing, Nehemiah 2 verse 9. And this is Nehemiah again. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. What gives you confidence in your credentials more than when people come with you? Nehemiah had people who came with him. Are the people who are coming with you on what you're doing, believing the same thing, standing with you, saying, yes, come on, I believe in this. I want to support you and help you. Nehemiah had captains of an army. He didn't just have an army. He had the captains of the army. And he had horsemen with him. The king was saying, this man not only has my letters, but he also has people that I've sent with him to protect him. It's a sign that I am with him, that nobody else can come against him, that nobody can stop him, and that make sure he gets where he's going to. If God's telling you to do something, he'll make sure you get where you're meant to be going. If God's telling you to do something, he'll make sure there are people to come with you. If all those things are lacking, go back to God. God, what's going on? Where are you in this? Is this right? Go and ask those questions and wait on him again. But when there are people to come with you, when there's provision to come with you, then you know that God is stamping a seal of approval on you. Have confidence in those credentials that God is with you. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter in what area it is. It could be something you're doing within your family, something within your workplace. But when God is with you and puts his stamp of approval on you, then have confidence in that. Find confidence from the fact that there are people around you. Find confidence from the fact that God is saying yes. The second thing I want to say to you is this. Nehemiah established an example. Let's look again at Nehemiah 2 verse 18. It said, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. You know, Nehemiah had gone back to Israel. He'd gone back to Jerusalem. He'd found the exiles who we already knew were in just a real state. They were down. They were low. Everything was going wrong. They'd got nothing. They'd got no provision. And then Nehemiah turns up and establishes an example. He turns up and tells them about how God's hand has been with him when he went and spoke to the king. Now, these people's experience of the king of Babylon is a man who has wiped Jerusalem to the floor, who has brought the walls down, who has hauled either them or their families or both off into captivity. Some of them have come back. Some of them were left there to just farm what bit of land was left. But Nehemiah was going back with a different message than what they thought. Nehemiah was going back and telling them, actually, God's been with me. And the king has put his stamp of approval on this. So the one who was against us, the one who sort of made all this mess, is suddenly now with us because God has done something amazing. So God has actually turned around the heart of Babylon and brought it back favorably 
to Jerusalem to actually send, well, actually, we did knock your walls down, but here's a load of wood to build them back up. And we did just send loads of people who killed you and did awful things to you and carted you off to Babylon. But here's some more people to help you rebuild. And actually, I'll send someone else to help and to just sort of set that all up. You've got to look at it from those Israelites' point of view. It is absolutely amazing that the place of Babylon that brought destruction and terror is now sending people to rebuild and bring hope to a place that it had previously destroyed. Nehemiah established an example. And you've got to ask yourself, what do you tell people around you? What did Nehemiah tell them? He could have come back and said, Babylon's hard work. You think you've had it hard, do you? <laughs> I've been in Babylon. I've been with the king. It's been horrendous. They make us eat this food. We aren't allowed to do all the things that we do as Jews. It's been really hard and they're not kind to us. And there's this and there's that and there's that. Don't tell me about all that's going on here. Try going and living in Babylon. How often do you feel like that? How often do you feel like that when people are saying, oh, I've had a hard week. I've, um, I've had an ingrowing toenail and... Um, I had a, t- a, a, a puncture on my tyre and, and, and I had these few different things happening. And you're thinking, I've, I've walked through hell this week. We telling me about your grim toenail for? You have no idea where I've been. I've, I'm still singed from my experience. But what do you tell people? What did Nehemiah come back and told them? He didn't come back and say, oh, Babylon was hard work. He came back and he said, God has done this and he's turned Babylon around and Babylon is now for us. Look at the amazing thing that God has done. What do you tell people? Do you tell people how hard your week's been? Do you tell people how difficult it is? Do you tell people how hard it is walking through things? And please don't get me wrong. Sometimes we need to talk. Sometimes we need a shoulder to cry on and we need a hug. But generally... We don't need to tell everybody who comes into contact with us. We don't need to tell this person and then, oh, good morning, how are you? Well, I'll tell you all, tell you all about it. And then we move on in the next person, oh, good morning, how are you? And then, oh, I'll just tell you all about it. And, and we're just like, oh, I'm just going to tell everybody. If, and, and if everybody in church doesn't know all about it before I leave, then I've done a bad job today. <laughs> Establish an example. Don't tell people about how hard it's been. Yes, if you need some support, get around people, get people to pray for you. Have a hug, have a cry, it's needed. But generally, tell people about how good God is and how his hand has been upon you. Because yes, it's hard. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, troubles come. But in and through it, look for God. What are you looking for? Are you looking at the difficulty or are you looking for God in it? It might not always be easy to find in it, but if you look hard enough, then you will find him. And from that place, you can establish an example to say to people, things might be tough, but actually God is with us. Do we moan and complain about the captivity that we live in? And your captivity may be ill health. Your captivity may be financial difficulties. Your captivity may be relational. Your captivity may be your job. Your captivity might be your partner. Your captivity could be all sorts of things. But are you going to moan and complain about it? Or are you going to tell of the goodness of God in and through it? And that's the, that's, that's the example that Nehemiah established. And if we choose to live like that, then our perspective will completely change. 
and our lives will be different and those around us. You know, when I look back at my life and it's been wonderful and it's been difficult and I'm sure everyone would say the same. You've had wonderful times and you've had difficult times. You may look back and think, there's been more wonderful times than difficult times. You may look back and think, well, they're pretty even. You may look back and think, there's been more hard times actually than good times. It's life. We all experience the good and the bad. But when I look back, I look back and I see the faithfulness of God. I see the faithfulness of God in the wonderful things. And I see the faithfulness of God in the things that have brought me to my knees. And I want to encourage you. Hindsight is a wonderful gift. But look back with hindsight looking for God, not looking for the difficulty. Look back with hindsight and find the lessons in it. Because it's in those things. It's in looking for the goodness of God. It's in looking for his faithfulness through the hard times. That actually it establishes an example and encourages us to move forward. It was Nehemiah's testimony of the goodness of God that caused the people to say, let us arise and build. It wasn't anything else. If he hadn't have told them about the goodness of God, I doubt they would have said, let us arise and build. But because of his testimony, it caused them to have hope. It caused them to have faith. It caused them to say, let us arise and build. And it stirred them up for good works. Third thing I want to say to you is this, that we learn from Nehemiah. It's a joint effort. Nehemiah does not undertake to do it without the Israelites. You don't see him turning up and starting mixing his cement and putting the bricks together on the wall. You don't see him with his saw starting cutting the wood and thinking, well, they'll come and join me if they want to. He doesn't. He turns up, he goes and assesses what's going on and he talks to the people about the goodness of God. He wants them to be with him. He knows that he can't do it on himself. He established this the example so that he can say to them, let's do it together. United, they began to build that, build that wall. And we see when you read the chapter of Nehemiah 3, so many different people come and build the wall. The perfume makers, the priests, some women come, which would have been unheard of at the time. You've got goldsmiths building a wall. These people were not builders. These people would have had no experience of building. They would have been raised to work in the trade that they were in. A goldsmith wouldn't have a callus on his hand because he worked with gold. The perfume makers would be like, this cement smells interesting, this isn't what I'm used to. There were so many talents and yet they laid them all aside to serve the purpose of God because Nehemiah was not willing to do it without them. And Nehemiah was probably like, look, I know you're passionate about perfume. I know you're wonderful at doing gold stuff. I know you're brilliant at being a priest and, and sacrificing and everything you do. But right now, God is calling us in a joint effort. And the joint effort is to build these walls. And right now, church, God's calling us in a joint effort. And the joint effort is to see souls won so that they don't go to a lost eternity. It's a joint effort. We've got to do it together. We've got to stand together in unity. And we can't do it without you. There's no point. 
Because it's the love and the unity of the body of Christ that wins people. And you know, you see Nehemiah, he's fighting for those families and for that future. He's standing with those people. They stand and they build together. He cared about the troubles that were going on around. And the one thing that he learned in that joint effort was not to be discouraged by the opposition that came at him. That he kept going, that the opposition kept coming and it kept coming and it kept trying to put him down and it kept laughing at him and saying, you're not good enough, you can't do this, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you can't build a wall with a load of perfume makers and goldsmiths. But the favourable hand of God was upon him. He had confidence in his credentials. He established the example and he kept establishing it. He kept encouraging the Israelites. When discouragement came, he kept going, come on, we can do it. Let's keep going. Look what we've done so far. When we look at those stats, you may think, well, yeah, they're amazing, but they could be so much more. But yes, look how far we've come. Let's keep going. Let's keep building. Let's keep believing. Let's keep inviting people. See that empty seat next to you? That's for that person on your heart. Pray for them this week. Invite them along. The only way they're going to hear is if we tell them. It's a joint effort. Don't get discouraged. Don't let the weight of the world drag you down. But get alongside one another and encourage one another. Establish that example to lift each other's spirits. Share it in the small groups. Share it in your teams. And if you're not part of any of those things, get involved in them. Because it's those things that hold us together and help us to keep going when times get tough. And the last thing I want to say to you, and possibly the most important, is this. Nehemiah went from strength to strength. In Nehemiah 1, the very last sentence in the chapter, it says this. I was a cupbearer to the king. A bit random, really. <laughs> Nehemiah's just told us what's going on in Israel, and he's just wept and cried and for days and just been distraught about it and gone on and on about, you know, we deserve to have been sent into captivity and God, you're this amazing God and we let you down and we're sorry and God, will you not establish your kingdom again and will you not do something through Israel again and, and spent all this time in prayer and then all of a sudden he just says, I was a cupbearer to the king. And... And, and, you know, probably from my limited understanding, I was like, cupbearer to the king, that's the person who has a sip of the wine before the king does, so if there's any poison in it, then they die first. Now, obviously, not many people, in my opinion, wanted to poison the king because Nehemiah was still alive. But in my head, I was thinking, well, there must be a long list, a long line of cupbearers just in case. Oh, that one's gone. Let's try a different glass. Here comes the next cupbearer to taste it. And that was what I was thinking. But actually, when you look at Babylonian history, it's a very different thing. Yes, they probably did taste the wine to make sure there wasn't poison in it. But let's be honest, how easy would it be to get to a member of the royal family today to poison them? Well, not very. You'd have to go through many, many different routes to try and get there. So it's not really, if, if the king of Babylon was the king of an entire empire, He's going to have some pretty hot security around what he's eating and drinking. There's me just thinking, oh, anyone can just walk past, slip a bit of poison in his cup, and whoop, oh, he's off. 
That's what the, the cupbearer is for. Did anyone else just think that's what they were? And, and yes, I suppose they did do that. They were that person who would do that. But actually, they were also testing for the quality of the wine before it went to the king. And it's, let me just read to you. It says, originally, the function of a cupbearer was to taste either for quality or for poison or for both, to carry and serve wine to his master. In a case like that of Nehemiah, a cupbearer for royalty was not just a personal servant, but also a trusted confidant and advisor. Thus, it was an office of great responsibility, power and honor in the Persian Empire. Nehemiah held a position of very, very high esteem. He was in personal relationship with the king and the king would have trusted his advice and would have asked for his advice on certain matters. He would have kept him close to him. And I always thought, why is the king bothered if the cupbearer is upset? That's why the king is bothered if the cupbearer is upset because the cupbearer is, is, is his confidant, is possibly his friend and is somebody he trusts implicitly and, and wants to, him to help him with things that are going on in the kingdom. It says as well that qualifications for the job were not held lightly, but it was somebody of high esteem, valued for their beauty, never know, and even more for their modesty, industriousness, and courage. Nehemiah would have been a man of integrity, would have been a man of understanding, and would have been somebody who could have brought something to the king of Persia. That's not just somebody who's a slave who has no credentials. That's somebody who carries some weight in the kingdom. And we see how much the king loved him because he actually granted his request. And Nehemiah left a place where he was somebody. Nehemiah left a place where he was in high ranking in the kingdom. And I always wondered why Nehemiah hadn't gone back with some of the other exiles. When they begin to let them go back and they said, if you want to go back to where you're from, you no longer have to stay in Babylon. And they start sending them back. And I thought, why didn't Nehemiah go back? Perhaps he wasn't allowed. Nehemiah probably didn't go back because he loved the king. He probably loved what he did. He was in a position where he was helping and establishing and he, probably from his point of view, bringing something of God into the Persian kingdom that was one of the most ungodly places on earth at the time. Nehemiah left a mountain. If you think about it, Nehemiah was at the top of his career in Babylon. He was at a place where he probably couldn't have got any better a position than where he stood. And then suddenly... The provincial call of God comes on his life. This burden comes to him and he thinks, oh. And we look at him and we think, oh, wow, Nehemiah, he's just, he's all for it. Can you imagine how hard it must have been to leave the place he was where he had everything he could have ever wanted, where he had a position of authority with the hope that he could get to another mountaintop. But we know from the story, and if you've never read it, I apologize, but we know from the story, it was no plain sailing. He went down that mountain from Babylon and into a valley of discouragement, into a valley of difficulties, into a valley of negativity, into a valley where people laughed at him, into a valley where people were cruel to him and tried to kill him. 
Psalm 84 verse 7 says this. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. Nehemiah went on a journey. He went on a journey from one mountaintop to another. The mountaintop that he went to was that where he rebuilt Jerusalem and he saw amazing things come about. But to get there, he didn't do a big jump. He had to go down the mountain that he was on and he had to walk through the valley. You know, it talks about in the Bible so much, going from strength to strength, going from glory to glory. But you know, there's a word in, be in between. Strength to strength. Glory to glory. And it's a really small word. It's just two letters. But those two letters encompass all of this. Don't get lost in thinking that when you sign up with God, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Don't get lost in thinking, I'm in this place and it's good and I'm, 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 I'm just, everything's wonderful with God and I've got saved or something wonderful's happened in ministry or God's done an amazing thing or there's been a miracle and we're so excited and our faith is like, it couldn't be any bigger and it's like, come on Goliath, I'm going to take you out and nothing's going to stop me. And my belief that we could just do anything, we could see anything happen. I'm just so excited. God is doing amazing things in and through me or in and through what's going on. And we get so excited on those mountaintop experiences. And then when we stand there, we see another mountain in the distance. Put the graphic on for us, Jess. We see another mountain in the distance and we think, wow, look at that one. I could go and stand on that one next. And when you see people who are into this climbing malarkey, which is quite clearly not me, they like go up one and you think, you've done it. What's the matter with you? You've climbed a mountain. And it's like, no, I now have the mountain fever and I have to climb the next one or a bigger one or a different sort of one that's a bit more complicated or it's got a different, different side that you have to go up this rocky thing or something else and somebody's going to come and tell me all the correct terminology afterwards thank you I will appreciate that but people just don't stop at one mountain and when you've experienced God and the goodness of God and how amazing he is you suddenly start to think do you know what we could do anything with God we, we, we we've seen people in the community be affected we could see the whole city saved. We could, the, the ministry that we're doing, it could just do something even bigger. Or, you know, I feel that like I could do something. Oh my goodness, what else could be done? And so we suddenly go, I'm going to go to the next mountain. I'm excited about it. God's with me, he'll never leave me. And then we get here. It's difficult. It's frustrating. There's a serious lack of vision because there's a big mountain in front of us. We could be fearful. We stand there and we think, hard work. We stand there and we think, I'm tired from coming down and walking in the valley. And now I've got to go back up again. I didn't realize the valley was like this. I didn't realize it was so difficult. I think I'll just, I'm just going to sit down and have a little cry about it as well. And, and, and then we find ourselves sort of thinking, well, 
I remember being up that other mountain, but I'm actually more engulfed and surrounded by the, my fear and, and my tiredness and, and, and the difficulties. And have you seen the size of that mountain and how hard it is? And I can't even see a path that starts it up. So I'm just going to sit here and have a cry. And let me just read to you the few verses before on Psalm 84. Let's go from verse 5, Jess. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Bacchus, which means tears, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. So you have a choice when you find yourself in this place. You have a choice when you find yourself in that valley that is full of tears and full of difficulties. And like the valley of the shadow of death we read about in Psalm 23. And you think, oh my word, why did I leave where I was in the first place? Why on earth did I think I could get up that one? I think I'm just going to stop and give up. But what do we learn from Nehemiah? He had confidence in his credentials that he could get there. He established an example. He said, remember, remember the faithfulness of God. How did he get there in the first place? He wasn't born there. You're not born on the mountaintop experience. Remember, go behind, behind. How did you get there in the first place? It was probably hard work. It was probably difficult at times. But you had faith and you kept going. Remind yourself. Be an example to yourself to keep going, to keep believing. And even when the valley is full of tears, change your perspective. It's the something in between that can stop us from going from strength to strength. It's the valley that can break us. But if we remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God, if we remind ourselves that it's a joint effort and we encourage one another and we say, come on, you can do it. Keep going, keep pushing, you can get there. Remember your dream, remember your vision, remember what you said, remember why you were going for it. Remember, remind yourselves. If we do all of those things, then we suddenly are reminded again of why we came down the mountain in the first place. We're reminded again that we came down so that we could go on. That we came down so that we could see more. That we came down so we could stretch further. Psalm 121 says this. I lift my eyes to the mountains. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. When you're mountain climbing, what do you look at? Do you look at the valley and how difficult it is and how awkward it is? Or do you fix your eyes, put the graphic on again, Jess. Do you fix your eyes upon the mountain saying, we can do it. We can get there. We can make it. There's a song that's recently come out called Raise a Hallelujah by Bethel. You've got to raise that hallelujah in your valleys. You've got to call up those things that are not at that moment in time, but what you believe that they will be. You've got to look at God and remember his goodness. You've got to look at God and be reminded of why you came down so you could go back up again. That it's from strength to strength. 
Theodore Rothke says this, over every mountain there is a path, although it may not be seen from the valley. The valley doesn't always give you everything that you need for the mountain. But if you keep your eyes fixed upon the mountain and not upon the valley, if you believe that you are going from strength to strength and don't get caught up in the lack of faith or the difficulties, then God will see you through. Nehemiah moved from a place where he had everything to go to a place that went through a valley where ultimately he saw the goodness of God, he saw the walls rebuilt, and he saw something amazing begin to happen. If you find yourself in the valley of life this morning, if you've come down from a mountain and thought, I'm believing for something different, and then you've got lost in the valley, and you can't find your mountain path again, then I believe that this morning God wants to reignite your passion Rebuild your faith and encourage you to step up again and begin to climb.